Well, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. The first point to make about our passage this morning is that all of it is the implication of what we talked about last week in verses 4 to 11. We know that because the first word in verse 12 is therefore. In other words, since what the pastor said in verses 4 to 11 is true, he can now move into the series of exhortations that we find in our text this morning. So let's begin with a quick review of last week in order to better grasp the point of our passage this week. In verses 4 to 11, the pastor reminded his hearers that in their struggle against sin, they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. The church to which the pastor wrote was facing opposition. And some, it seems, were beginning to grow weary and faint-hearted in the face of their suffering. So the main point the pastor made in last week's text was in verse 7a. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. What they were facing was painful, but the pain and trouble they were experiencing was not a sign of the disfavor of the Lord, but rather of the love of God. Their suffering, the pastor says, was not meaningless or some form of punishment. It was discipline. Discipline that was designed for their good and for their holiness. Suffering in the lives of Christians has a purpose, we said. And we don't have to guess at what that is. The pastor tells us in the end of verse 10. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it is with that truth now established that the pastor turns to a series of exhortations in verses 12 to 17. Therefore, he writes, since what you are enduring in your life is the fatherly discipline of the Lord, and it is for your good, do three things. There are three basic things the pastor now commands the recipients of Hebrews to do. First, in verses 12 and 13, the pastor exhorts them to support the weak and the wounded among them. Second, in verse 14, he exhorts them to strive together for peace and holiness. And then third, in verses 15 to 17, he urges them to see to it that their communion is free of apostates whose presence may lead to the apostasy of others. They were to support the weak and wounded Strive for peace and holiness and see to it that their fellowship was not at risk from those who would fail 
to obtain the grace of God. So you know what it all boils down to? It all boils down to this. They have to help one another to make it. They have to help one another to run this race with endurance. They have to help one another to persevere in their struggle against the sin of apostasy. They must help one another. What most impresses me about our text this morning is that the pastor doesn't give these exhortations to believers as individuals. Verses 12 through 17 are not written to Christians as if they exist in their own individual bubbles of faith and struggle, as if the pastor's point is just do your best. I hope you make it. No. Through the pastor's exhortations, what this text teaches us is that we can't endure on our own because we're not supposed to endure on our own. We're supposed to help one another finish this race that we're all in. That is the central message of verses 12 to 17. And I think that's the most challenging aspect of this text for us, or for me at least, because I grew up in the North American culture of rugged individualism. And I think that culture has so invaded and so hindered the church that we need texts like this to remind us that the key question here isn't how do I make sure I make it, but rather how do I make sure my brothers and sisters make it? How do I make sure my brothers and sisters fight the good fight and finish the race. That's what this text is about. And I think we'll all be deeply challenged if we take it to heart. And so we begin with the first set of exhortations that the pastor has for his hearers in verses 12 and 13, which I'm summarizing this way. They are to support the weak and wounded among them. Therefore, the pastor says in verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. As he has since the beginning of chapter 12, the pastor here continues to employ imagery that works within an athletic context. In chapter 12, verse 1, he said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, any long-distance runner will tell you that drooping arms and flopping hands and wobbling knees are signs of flagging energy in a marathon run. Verse 3 had warned against growing weary or faint-hearted. Now it seems the pastor knows that there are some among his hearers who are exhausted in their struggle against sin. And so he says... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Only I don't think this is the pastor turning to those who are in such a state of weariness and simply telling them they have to run tough and straighten up and suck it in, so to speak. 
there may be an element of that kind of urgent urgency, but it's not the main idea here, I don't think, because in these carefully chosen words, the pastor is alluding to an Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 35, you could read it another time, is a beautiful picture of the people of God returning from their exile to Zion at some point in the future. And speaking to those people then in exile, in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3, the prophet gives a clear command. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. That is the verse the pastor's alluding to. But then critically, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 35 goes on to interpret that imagery. How is it that they are to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees? Well, it's by doing as verse 4 of Isaiah 35 instructs. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Notice how Isaiah clarifies for us to what, or rather to whom, the symbolism of weak hands and feeble knees refers. It is those among them who have an anxious heart. And the prophet says that others from within the people of God are to say to them, be strong, fear not. Behold, God will come and save you. He will bring you to the coming kingdom. You see, just keep your eyes focused on that finish line and keep going. As I read it, the point of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, is that we are to lift the drooping hands among us and strengthen the enfeebled knees among us because they are those in our community who find themselves discouraged and dispirited, who have an anxious heart, as Isaiah puts it. Isaiah chapter 35 pictures the desert blooming, the lame being healed, streams flowing in the desert. It's all a picture of Israel returning to Zion when the days of exile are finally over. They shall obtain gladness and joy, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10 says. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's what the weak hands and feeble knees needed to know was ahead for them. The pastor then takes that context and applies it to his hearers now. Because now the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. But the final gladness and joy of that kingdom still awaits his hearers as they endure in the midst of suffering. The pastor is urging them to strengthen the weak and discouraged among them with the promise of what is to come. And I mean by that the promise we've been talking about for months and months in Hebrews, the promise of salvation. Life with God in a place 
It's where we're going together. So I think the whole point in verse 12 is as simple as it is profound. We need to remind one another of that. We need to say with love and conviction to a brother or sister who's struggling these words of Isaiah 35, verse 4. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. We need to urge one another to hope in the coming and the justice and the blessing of God. We need that. I don't know how you're wired, but to my mind, there's a world of difference between me telling myself those things and a sister or brother who loves me, looking me in the eye when I'm afraid, and lovingly speaking such powerful, strengthening words to me. May it be so among us. The pastor then continues his exhortation to support those who are struggling in verse 13. He says, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Here the pastor is alluding to another Old Testament passage, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. Listen to that. Proverbs 4, verse 25 says, Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder, or it could be translated, make level. Make level the path of your feet. Then... All your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. According to that Proverbs passage, the path on which we walk needs to be level so as to provide sure footing. And it needs to be straight. It says make level the path of your feet and turn your foot away from evil. Only the point is that whereas in Proverbs 4, the you is singular because it refers to a father's wise instruction to his son, in Hebrews, the you is plural because now the pastor is applying this teaching of the proverb to the entire community. And the point is that when other Christians are hurt or disabled in some way, when they're lame, what's needed is for others in the church to gather around them, to clear away obstacles that may be in their path, and to point them in the straight course of life they can follow all the way to the heavenly city. In other words, when the pastor says, make straight paths for your feet, he's not just talking to you or me individually. He means we, we are to make straight and to make level the paths that we can all walk on together, brothers and sisters. Because what's the purpose of doing so? It's so that, the pastor says, so that what is lame, meaning any in the community who are injured in some way, what is lame here is a reference to other people. We make our paths collectively straight 
so that they may not be put out of joint. They may not be dislocated in some kind of further injury that would render them incapacitated, but rather be healed. The verb that's translated here as put out of joint in the ESV often describes straying off course from the way that leads to life elsewhere in the New Testament. In other words, the pastor is making the same point as Proverbs 4, but he's making it for the whole community together. We are to do all we can to make sure others don't swerve to the right or to the left, that others turn their feet away from evil. We need to help one another stay on, or in some cases, get back on the straight paths of righteous living and turning from evil. That's the point. Our example and our assistance matters for the brother or sister who may be injured in some way. And so the first exhortation the pastor gives his hearers is that they are to support the weak and wounded among them. The second exhortation the pastor gives his hearers is that they are to strive for peace and holiness. Verse 15 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, at first, it may seem a little difficult to see how the thought of verse 15 relates to what came before it. But in fact, it is directly related since the straight path on which we're all to journey is marked by two virtues to be, to be pursued peace, and holiness. As we run, the pastor encourages us to this dual pursuit. And again, the emphasis here is on the fact that this is to be done together. I think the everyone in verse 15 belongs actually with the opening verb rather than with the noun peace, so that the verse could be read, strive with everyone or strive together for peace and for holiness. The New Testament often instructs believers to live peacefully with each other, even as we're also to live peacefully with the people around us, to be peacemakers in the world. Jesus emphasized this in Matthew chapter 8, 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, he said or they shall be called sons of God. It's something Paul stressed in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, Paul writes there, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Peace is what all of us must pursue in Christ's name, and we must pursue it together. Paul gets at what it is that drives such peace in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, all rights, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace 
is included in the fruit the Spirit produces in believers in Galatians 5, verse 22. And last week, we saw in Hebrews 12, verse 11, that God's fatherly discipline yields in his children the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So as is always the case, God is the source of our peace and works by his spirit to produce peace in our lives. And yet, the pastor says, we must strive for that peace. Many scholars think Psalm 34, verse 14 is in the background here. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. How do we pursue or strive for such peace? Well, it will be through the effort of our Christ-like attitudes to start with. We will be people who consciously put peace with our neighbors ahead of our own rights and prerogatives. The Apostle Peter argued this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Such an attitude will pervade our interactions with one another if we are indeed striving together for peace. As one author puts it, those who pursue peace will to forgive and will to forget and will to be kind, and will to be thoughtful, and will to help others, and will to pray for their enemies. And of course, all of that has to come from a heart that has been transformed by God's grace, which is why it's the case that such peace cannot be pursued apart from holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord, our text says. It was again Jesus who pronounced blessing on the pure in heart who shall see God, as Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says. In the Old Testament, it was a lack of holiness that prevented worshipers from drawing near to God. We've seen already in Hebrews and it's through Christ's blood that we have been sanctified in our standing before God so that we can draw near to him. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is only because of Jesus Christ that we can have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But far from implying a static state of holiness, ours must be a holiness that is pursued in our day-by-day -day lives. Hebrews 10, verse 14 says, By a single offering, he has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. That's us. We're the ones who are being sanctified in this life. Holiness is necessary for salvation because holiness is the flowering of a heart that has been truly transformed. We've seen more than once in this series how the new covenant delivers not only our forgiveness, but also the transformation of our hearts that leads to holy living. Hebrews 10, verse 16, quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 3, says it clearly. This is the covenant that I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And so the pastor writing Hebrews is well aligned with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We are to strive for such holiness, even as it is the product of the Holy Spirit working within us. In verse 14, the pastor links the pursuit of peace with the pursuit of holiness, because he sees that we cannot have one without the other. Blessed are the pure in heart, in Matthew 5, verse 8, is followed by blessed are the peacemakers, in Matthew 5, verse 9. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul urges Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is the constant New Testament command for the people of the New Covenant, and so this is the second exhortation the pastor gives his hearers. They are to strive for peace and holiness. Which brings us then to the third set of exhortations in our passage this morning in verses 15 to 17. Only there's a shift here, because whereas in verses 12 to 14, the pastor provided positive commands regarding what his hearers were to do, now in verses 15 to 17, he offers negative admonitions concerning what they were to guard against. The exhortation for the community to pursue peace and holiness now becomes a warning for mutual vigilance as three successive clauses in our passage reveal the nature and dire significance of that which threatens it. The first is found in verse 15, where the pastor says, see to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Which I think means essentially, see to it that no one falls behind and drops out of the race. 
because the pastor is talking here about the cause of apostasy, failure to obtain the grace of God. It was a long time ago, but back in Hebrews chapter 3, we were talking about the wilderness generation that left Egypt, yet were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And in chapter 4, verse 1, the pastor said, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And the same verb translated in chapter 4, verse 1, as to reach, is translated here in chapter 12, verse 15, as to obtain. But the point in both passages is the same. It means they don't make it in the end. To fail to obtain the grace of God is to fail to do what the pastor centrally urges his hearers to do back in chapter 4, verse 16. It is to fail to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The pastor knows that we need that grace. We need it all through our lives. And it's not a matter of having a need that somehow outstrips God's supply of grace. We can have no need that outstrips God's grace, and we never will. James 4, verse 6 expresses what's always true of the Lord. He gives more grace. There's always more grace for the believer. Supply isn't the issue. Rather, it's a matter of what one commentator calls falling behind, not keeping pace with the movement of divine grace, which meets and stirs the progress of the Christian. How do we get to the point at which we fail to obtain the grace of God? What does that look like in our lives? First and primarily, it looks like unconfessed sin. If we let sin go unconfessed in our lives, we risk the failure of which the pastor speaks, for such sin can deceive us and harden our very hearts. Second, it looks like starving ourselves of God's word. If we stop reading and listening to the faithful teaching of the scriptures, we will fail to obtain the grace of God. For the word of God is living and active, the pastor said in chapter 4, verse 12. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, we need the word to do its work in our lives. And third, to fail to obtain the grace of God looks like absenting ourselves from the fellowship of the church. As one author puts it, the movement of divine grace through Christ's body is meant to be a corporate experience. In Ephesians 3, verse 18, Paul prays that his readers would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? 
our capacity to understand God's word and to experience his grace is vitally linked to our participation in the church with all the saints. Those are just three ways that you and I can fail to obtain the grace of God in our lives. And the point is, the pastor says to the whole community, see to it that no one does that. Do not miss here the point that the antidote for this first danger is the pastoral care of Christians for each other. The Greek word here that is translated see to it comes from the verb episkopeo, from which comes the noun episkopos, the New Testament word that can refer to an overseer or a bishop. But the pastor's point here isn't that the duty, this duty is restricted to officers in the church, just the opposite. Certainly a bishop or a pastor serving under a bishop is to take special care in this area, but here the pastor stresses that we are all to seek out those who seem to have fallen back or turned away. That we are all to inquire about their struggle, that we're all to exhort and encourage them in the truth of the gospel and thus be used by God for the perseverance of his saints. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, the pastor says. And then he notes a second danger in verse 15. We are to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Here the pastor alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, where Moses said to the covenant people, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The point merits more extensive comment than we can give it, but I think the focus here is on those within the community who haven't just turned away in some fashion, but who in fact think that even though they're walking contrary to the will of God, that they're fine. The ones in view here are specifically those who say to themselves, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The danger is that such people end up promoting that false thinking to others in the church through their lives, and perhaps through their teaching as well, if they go unchecked. This root isn't just bitter in that it tastes bad. The point is it's a root that bears poisonous and bitter fruit. Within the church community, such people are spiritually dead. They cause trouble, the pastor says, and can lead to many others becoming defiled 
That is to be unclean, to be excluded from God's presence. It might be that they're teaching actual heresy, or it might just be that their idolatrous lives are promoting it. But either way, the church must see to it that such persons do not have the opportunity to spring up, to grow in their midst. Careful vigilance and wise oversight are required, as they are also when we come to the third and final admonition in verse 16. Not only are the Christians in this community to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up, they are also to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, maybe I should have planned to give a whole sermon just on Esau. But essentially, the third warning the pastor gives here is against sensual and godless patterns of life that cause people to turn away from the eternal things to the worldly things. From the pursuit of spiritual blessing to carnal cravings of all sorts. The prime example in the Bible of such a dangerous mindset is Esau, whose willingness to trade his birthright, his inheritance, the promised blessing, all of it for a single meal, makes him the epitome of apostasy. We can't go back to read about that incident in Genesis chapter 25 right now, but maybe you can take it up further in your small groups this week. The point isn't complex. Esau's lack of concern for holy things was evident in his disdain for his birthright. It was all so trivial to him that he sold it for a single meal. Genesis chapter 25, verse 34 summarizes, Esau despised his birthright. As one commentator puts it, he squandered for a single meal, for something so fleeting and unprofitable as the gratification of his carnal appetite of the moment, the precious privilege of his birthright. Likewise, these Christians will be guilty of a much greater act of profanity if, disheartened by the difficulties of the contest, they barter a heavenly birthright for a short period of worldly ease and prosperity. Esau was unholy, verse 16 says, godless, a man who had no regard for God, whose focus was only on physical pleasure. Of such persons, John Calvin says, they are those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition, addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony, and entangled with other kinds of pleasures. They give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. According to the pastor, our job is to make sure that such a secular mindset 
and immoral lifestyle finds no place in the church and that every believer is warned against it. Such persons are dangerous because others are easily seduced by their godless example. And it all leads to ruin. For when years later, the covenant blessing Esau had despised was actually given to Jacob instead of him, and he realized the gravity of his error. It was too late. Verse 17 says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. Literally, it says he found no place of repentance. It's an idiom that means he didn't repent of his sin. Though he sought it, with tears, that is, though he sought the blessing with tears. You can read about that moment in Genesis chapter 27, verse 34. Esau cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, the text says, as he sought the blessing he had foolishly discarded long ago. Tragically, in the end, Esau mourned his loss, but not his sin. He wanted the blessing, but had no desire for repentance. I agree with the conclusion one commentator draws from it all when he writes, Esau's rejection is reflected in a life of callousness that does not desire repentance or seek to turn from its rebellious ways. It all reminds me of the early warning the pastor gave his hearers in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape, Pastor warns? How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot endure on our own. We are not supposed to endure on our own. Running with endurance, it turns out, is a team sport. And so this morning, I ask you to join me in praying and working together to ensure that Christ the King is and will be a place where we support the weak and wounded among us, where we strive for peace and holiness, and where we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that we all may finish well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.